The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And we return to this 21st chapter again today to a subject that we uh, began just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I didn't have time to finish all that I wanted to say to you on this passage then. And so we're back looking at this again this morning to uh, talk about a question that is important to every person that's in the room. Now, over and over again, we see the timeless nature of the Bible as 2,000-year-old questions become just really very uh, pertinent to today's society, questions that still need to be answered today. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his great sermon, the people were very, very convicted by what Peter said. They, they had just crucified the Holy One of Israel, and Peter preached to them in that strong, stirring message, and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? After killing the Christ, after uh, putting, torturing him and uh, killing the Holy One of Israel, they, their only response to Peter's message was, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Well, this is what you need to do. And he gave them a right answer, really the same answer that's the answer that we need today because of what we have done against God. But Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And by that he meant you must repent of your sins, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then he said you need to be baptized to show a profession of that faith that you've made in him that he is your Lord and your Savior. So these kinds of questions that are asked in Scripture, uh, such as these people ask, are questions that never grow old, and neither is the one that we find in this passage. This is a passage about the authority of Jesus. Where does he get his authority, and why should we believe him? And that question was answered by the testimony of the prophets. It was answered in his holy life. It was answered by the miracles that he did. And most convincingly, it was answered by what would happen in just a few days from this time that we're reading here. It would be answered by his death, his placement in the tomb, and then his resurrection from the grave. Janet sang about much of that just a few moments ago. I want to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 23. I'd like you to stand with me, if you would, one more time as we read God's Word. Matthew 23, and we'll read for now down to verse number 27. It says, And when he was come into the temple, that's Jesus, of course, when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. The baptism of John, whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. 
And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Father, we ask that you would help us as we look into your word today. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I just said, we we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago. And uh, in that message, we we really just stuck to one topic, and that was the challenge to Christ's authority. The challenge that we find here to the authority of Jesus as he went into the temple to teach and preach to the people. And this challenge is an insightful one. In fact, we would say there was nothing at all wrong with the questions that were asked of Jesus. Uh, If there was a teacher or a preacher that stepped into our building, as Jesus did into the temple, and he came up to our pulpit and he began to preach, we would have the right to ask, where did you get the authority to preach here? We would expect that, and you would expect that of me, that if someone just walked in off of the street and wanted to come and speak to our congregation, that we, we would want to know, where do you get this kind of authority? Because we know that we would never give authority for anyone to come here and to speak to our people and tell them things that we don't believe. And that's pretty much the problem that we have in this passage. But here, it's on a very much more intense scale. And I'm not saying that the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem should not have known where Jesus got his authority. They should have known, and I think they did. But what I am saying is that they believed that they were the guardians of the temple, that they were the ones who could say who could come in and teach and preach the people, to the people. Jesus was teaching things that that were opposed to what the leaders of the temple said. Now, he had just come into town two days before this. Uh, he was riding on a little donkey, and people were throwing palm branches into his way. They were praising him, and they called him the Son of God, the Messiah. They said, Hosanna to the Son of David. And they were pointing to him as the long-awaited Messiah who would redeem Israel. On Monday, the previous day, he returned to Jerusalem and headed straight into the temple. And there he became very angry by what he saw. And with righteous indignation, he turned over the tables of the money changers that were in the temple, these charlatans and these cheats that were making a mockery of the sacrificial system. And then he came with the sick people and the poor people and the lowest on the rung of society, and he allowed those people to come into the temple where they previously weren't welcome. And then he was walking around the temple, and he was uh, acted like he owned the place. He was teaching the people about the kingdom that was about to come, and he was teaching them about the gospel of salvation, and he kept telling the people all sorts of things that were contrary to the teachings of the, of the religious leaders, and he was calling them into accountability for their hypocrisy of their fake religion. And you can see that that was a very tense time. The leaders wanted to challenge him, and they wanted to know, who gave you this authority? In fact, he caught the attention of the highest leaders in the land, the highest religious leaders, because here we have a representation of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the highest court of Israel, made up of Pharisees and scribes and of the elders of the people, the priests and the scribes and the elders, and they came to challenge his authority. Who gave him the right to do what he did? And I want you to understand that this was no easy matter because Jesus was very popular. A man that can heal, 
a man that can open the eyes of the blind, someone who can cause the lame to walk, someone who could even cast out powerful demons, somebody who gave people hope where there was no hope. This is not a fellow who would be easy to get rid of. And so the way was not brute force. The, the way to do it, they thought, was to discredit him, to show that he has no authority for what he did. If his authority didn't come from them, then he must not have any authority. And they hoped that the people would see this. There's no authority for him to be there, and so they would turn against him. So they came and they challenged him, and they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? And the answer that Jesus gave them was not, uh, it was really an intuitive one. It wasn't just simple and straightforward as if he would say, well, I'll tell you where I got my authority. I'm God. And so I have the authority to do anything that I want to do, just as I please. No, rather, he wanted them to answer their own question, because that would be more effective to prove out of their own mouths who he was. And so he said, answer my question, and I will answer yours. Where did John, that is John the Baptist, where did he get the authority for his baptism? Was that from heaven, or was it from men? And that was a stinging question. They had to be careful how they answered this. And so they drew back. They huddled together to deliberate, to consider how should they respond to him. Now, they knew that the people had a high regard for John. Uh, To them, John was a prophet of the highest order, one who's like Jeremiah or Elijah in the Old Testament. And indeed, Jesus said that of all the prophets, John the Baptist was the greatest So the people looked at him that way, and one of the things that John promised was there's there's a Messiah, he said, a Messiah is coming, he's near to us now, and the people believed that, and they wanted to believe that. And the leaders did not want to upset the people over this because they feared the people, because they liked John the Baptist, and they feared that they would be stoned if they rejected John. But on the other hand, for them to admit that John was a prophet of God would, of course, mean that they were obligated to believe him. And what did John say? Well, one day he looked up and he saw Jesus coming in the way, and he pointed to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so what John did was to testify that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God, that he is the one who has come to save his people. Now, folks, that proclamation is all the authority that anybody would ever need to preach at the temple, to clear out the temple, to heal people at the temple, just to do anything that he wanted to do at the temple. I can assure you that if Jesus showed up here today, that I would have no trouble clearing the dais to let him come and speak and say anything he wants to say, do anything that he wants to do, because Jesus has that kind of authority. He has authority over you and over me. And I'm pleased in my life to let him have that authority to do whatever he wants. And I would advise you to do the same because that will be the best for you in the end. But this is the reason that that so many people reject the authority of Jesus. Uh, Scientists and business leaders and politicians, if they were to accept Jesus' authority, then that means that they would be obliged to surrender their obedience to him. And so it means they would have to stop their conceit. They would have to stop living for self. 
that they must become the servants of Christ, that they would become slaves of his, that they would use their lives to glorify him, they would have to surrender everything to him. But they won't admit that authority because they love their sin. They want to stay in their sin, and they love to believe that they're in control, not God, that they're masters of their own fate and captains of their soul. One of our outreach videos a few weeks ago, there was a person that was asked why, a young man really asked why did he not trust Christ when his life was uncertain and he admitted to it, he knew that he could die at any moment, he was asked why then will you not trust Christ? And his answer was simply this, sin. He loved the pleasures of his sin He loved the way that he was living. He loved the fornication and the lewdness and all the things that people so desperately seek after. And so it is the pleasures of sin that have a stronger pull on people, even so strong that they resist the call of God to eternal life. And did you know that every one of us here today that is saved, we were in that same condition, that we resisted God? It's not until he comes to us and convicts us and regenerates us and then turns us around that we begin to recognize the authority that he has over us. And so do you see the problem that they have? To admit that John's baptism came from heaven is to admit the validity of Jesus. And it's to admit that his ministry came from God. And this is what they tried every way to avoid, any way that they could. They avoid crediting its ministry to the power of God, even going as far as to say that the miracles that Jesus did were actually done through the power of Satan. But here they're asked a question. They can't escape this. And a truthful answer must yield their admission that he is God. Now, now let me expand on this just a little bit today. The religious leaders would not answer Jesus' question, and yet their response actually conceded their defeat. They said, we don't know. We can't tell whether John's baptism was from God or whether it was from men. And they knew that they couldn't answer yes or no to his question because either way, they would be, they would be crushed under the weight of their response. Now, let's take a look here for just a minute at the right answer to this question. What kind of authority does Jesus have? Where, where does Jesus get his authority? Well, first, Jesus has sovereign authority. Now, sovereign authority means that he has the right to do as he pleases without answering to anyone. And Jesus had just given them an example of his sovereign authority. He rode into town on that little donkey to the praises of the people, and they hailed him as a king, and kings have authority. Kings have the right to demand obedience. And when Jesus compared his authority to John's, the obvious uh, answer to this, the teaching here, is that he got his authority from God. And I don't care where you go, or who you talk to, you're not going to find a higher authority than God. You're going to keep going up and going up and going up. You'll go up that chain of command until you come to a place that you can go no higher. And everybody who is below that one who's in the highest position of the chain of command, everybody below that has to bow to that person. And that's exactly where Jesus is. You can't go any higher than him. And that's because he's sovereign. And you might ask, well, what about the Father? Jesus is the Son. Isn't the Father higher than the Son? Well, no. 
Jesus is not subordinate to the Father in power and authority. Now, it is true that while he was here, he limited his authority for a time, but even the limitation of his authority was a sovereign act of his own will. He had control over that. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And that meant that they are one in substance and one in essence. So Jesus has this sovereign authority. You think of God the Father? Well, Jesus and the Father are one, and they have authority. Now, secondly, Jesus has sole authority. That means he doesn't confer with anyone. He doesn't take counsel with anyone. Nobody helps him to decide what actions that he'll take. If you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, he was the king of Babylon when Babylon was at its height as a world power, and Nebuchadnezzar thought, I am the most powerful person in the world. Everyone must bow to me. But then Nebuchadnezzar was taught the authority of God and how that Nebuchadnezzar is not the highest authority that there is. And so what God did was to make him lower than all men in the world and actually took him down to the level of a beast. And then when Nebuchadnezzar had learned that lesson of who's actually in authority, this is what he said, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? That's the kind of authority that you need to learn that Jesus has, that he has no counselors. He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power is God's power. And this is just one of the many ways that Jesus declared himself to be God. He has sole authority over all. And that is just so important for men who came to Jesus asking him about his authority. Because for them to do anything against him, it meant that they must have an authority that's higher than his. And so he might well ask the question, where do you get your authority? You know, I run uh, up against this so many times. There are so many people that I talk to that will tell me things that Jesus did and what Jesus said, and they give me their opinions of who God is and what God does. And when I listen to them, I find that what they have to say about God and what they have to say about Jesus does not match what is in the Bible. There's nothing there that lines up with what the Bible says. And so I ask them, well, By what authority do you make your statements? Why do you say that you believe Jesus did this or did that, or Jesus was this kind of person or that kind of person? Where do you get your opinions about God? And they stop for a second, and they have no scripture to go to, and so they just finally say, oh, that's what I think. That's just what I think. And so you mean to tell me that your authority for who Jesus is and what he does and who God is, that your authority for this is what you think? And that's your highest authority? Your thoughts are your own authority? There's no authority in that. I might as well believe a child when he comes to me and says that there are, there are terrible dragons and pink fairies. I mean, if that is where you get your authority, I might as well believe those things. What you think is not a real authority. Authority has to come from a place higher. Well, that's the situation these men are in. They have no one to substantiate their authority. All that they had was what was passed on from rabbi to rabbi, and none of them actually claimed the ultimate authority. 
Remember when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, that the people were amazed at what he taught, and they just said, well, he speaks as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And that was an indictment against their leaders. They knew their leaders really didn't speak with any authority. I mean, the scribes only listened to the person that was before them, and they quoted those that were before them without substantiating the stopping place, the higher place for the real authority. And Jesus came on the scene, and he started teaching the people, and Jesus never quoted from anybody. He didn't go anywhere to get his authority. He never repeated what others said unless he was repeating the prophets, which they all agreed got their authority from God. And do you also remember that in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus many times said things like this, you have heard it said of old time. Or in other words, this is the thing that you've heard, this is the thing that you've been taught. And then right after that he says, but I say unto you. In other words, I'm the one that you need to go to. I'm the one who has authority. And so he kept knocking down the repetitions of their rabbis. And they said, I, I say unto you, Jesus said, I am the sole authority to listen to. And the people got that. They understood it. Didn't they say, no one has ever spoken the way that he's spoken? Nobody's like this man. Nobody teaches like he teaches. He didn't go to their scholars. He didn't go to their schools. He had no authority from men. Now, you contrast that again to the delegates that confronted Jesus. Jesus said, did John get his authority from heaven or was it from men? And an admission of John's authority that it was from heaven was an admission that their authority was from men because their teachings did not agree with Jesus or with John the Baptist. Now, here's the thing. Authority, authority does not cut it when you're in God's arena. Authority with men is not the place to go. And so they had no basis to exclude Jesus from teaching in the temple. And this was so damaging to them. He has sovereign authority, he has sole authority. And if he has that, it means that the temple belongs to him, that this is the temple of Jehovah God, and the Jews are his people. And if he has no authority to be there, then nobody has the authority to be there. Let me take you back for just a minute to the Old Testament and the dedication of the original temple that was built by Solomon. King Solomon said as he was praying, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like, like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all thine heart. And then as he prayed on, he said, Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make towards this place. God said, My name shall be there. And so this was the temple of the holy God. Jesus had the authority to cleanse it, to teach in it, and to drive out people who showed that they had no respect for it. He had the sole authority to do it. Now, most importantly, and this is the real bottom line of why Jesus did all of these things, is this third authority. Jesus has sole authority. And this time the word is S-O-U-L. 
Now, knowing that Jesus rules a building or that he rules the universe doesn't matter very much to you unless you understand this, that he has soul authority. That means that he rules the destiny of your soul. Now, in the 10th chapter of Matthew, Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there's the dreaded word that nobody wants to hear any longer, the word hell. Wouldn't you go to church and hear about hell anymore? But Jesus spoke about hell, and he said, Fear the one who has the power to destroy the body and the soul in hell. And this is because Jesus rules the soul. That is the most precious thing that you possess because the soul is the real you. That's the part that is your real life. This is the part that God has created to have an eternal existence. And every person is going to go into eternity, into one of two places, according to what Jesus said and the Bible says, and that place is either heaven or hell. And that's because the soul never goes out of existence. And so the moment that the body dies, the soul heads to that eternal destination. And where your soul is going depends upon how you answer Jesus' questions. Questions like this, who do you say that I am? And then also, where do you think that I get my authority? Jesus has soul authority. And that means that he has the power to forgive sins. And the reason that people die and go to hell every day is because their sins have not been forgiven. And that's why Jesus went through all the events of this last week of his life. It was to make it possible for you to have forgiveness. And if you go on not admitting the authority that he has over your soul and not surrendering yourself to his will and not trusting him as your savior then you'll have no forgiveness and he'll require the punishment of hell for you. What he will do is to use his authority to send you to hell. Now, you may not like that. And as I said, preachers don't tell you about that today. But what's the point of preaching about Jesus and saying what the Bible says unless we go right there and see actually what he did say? And we believe exactly what he did say, and we warn people, caution people about this place that God says they will go if they have not trusted Christ as Savior. But the Bible also says that if a person will repent of his sins and trust Jesus as Savior, if you believe that that he paid the penalty of hell for you by his death on the cross, then he will use his authority to send your soul into the presence of the Heavenly Father. He will send you to heaven. Now, it makes a whole lot of difference what you think and what you believe about the authority of Jesus. This is a question on which you can't be wrong. Your soul depends upon it. Who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? Isn't that the people even ask that question? Now, if these would only admit that Jesus had this authority, it would make all the difference to them in the world and in eternity because they could have their sins forgiven and that's the thing that they needed most and friend that is the thing that you need the most well we all know that jesus was a master teacher and so he took the next part of this passage to drive this point home with a parable now we're going to read the second part of the text and this is the comparison in the parable In verse number 28, if you'll look at your Bible, Matthew 21, verse 28, Jesus goes on to tell the story in a parable. He says, But what think ye? A certain man 
had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go today, or go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? And if you don't understand King James language, that's which of those two did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe in him. Now we notice that verse number 32 shows us that this conversation is not disjointed from what happened previously, but Jesus intended this to be an illustration of the result of that conversation. Now, We know this about Jesus' parables because we're told earlier in the scriptures that often Jesus' parables were very cryptic, that they were hard to understand. And Jesus purposely, the word of God says, he purposely made them difficult to understand so that unbelievers could not figure out the meaning of them. And so there were many times that believers would come, uh, the disciples would come, and they would ask Jesus, what did you mean by this parable? And Jesus would explain it to them. But here we have a parable that's very much different because it needs no explanation. The men that this was intended for knew the meaning of it, and they knew the intent was for them. So Jesus told a story to illustrate his point. And he says, there is a man who has two sons, and he wanted each of his sons to go to work in his vineyard. Now you can see very clearly from the very beginning, there is an issue here of authority. They recognized that the father had the authority, he had the right to command his sons to go to work. Now, most people have lost the understanding of these kinds of things today in the modern family. They don't understand the relationship between parents and children, and we never can figure out who is actually the boss at home. But these people have no trouble with that, and and that's that's a lesson for another time. But these people understood that authority, and they sympathized with the authority the father had. And it's obvious here that Jesus intended that the Father represented God and the vineyard that these were to go to work in represented the world or the field of service or the kingdom of God where they are to work. And one son said he would not go to work, but then later he reversed himself and he went to the field to work. And then the second son said he would go to work, but he never made it into the vineyard. He promised to go, but he didn't go. Well, the identity of the sons is easy to figure out because Jesus actually identified them. The first son, according to verse 31, represents the publicans and the harlots. Those are the outcasts of society. And then the second son represents the religious leaders. And the question is, which of these two sons did the will of the father? And the answer is obvious. In the end, it's the first son that did the father's will. Jesus said... The publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you, or that is before you who are the religious leaders. Now let's take a look at that for just a minute. First we look at the conduct of the first son. How did the first son act? Well, there are two actions that the first son took, and they are at opposite ends of the spectrum. The first one is refusal. The first son heard the command of the father, and he just flat out refused. 
There are no excuses here. He made no apologies. With great disrespect and with no pretenses, he said to his father, no, I'm not going to go. Now, without giving too much credit, we can say that the first son represents honest unbelievers. What's an honest unbeliever? Well, that's somebody who has no intention of serving the Lord. I mean, from the very first, he says, I'm not going to do it. I don't have any desire for God. I don't care anything about the things of God. I don't want to follow God. Do you know those kinds of people? I'm sure you do. You work with them. They're probably some neighbors of yours. And you try to talk to them, and they want nothing to do with God. And sometimes they'll even curse you to the face if you insist that what they really need to do is repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Savior. They're not going to do it. They will not turn to the Lord. And so they don't want to hear about it. And these people, I don't care how many times you ask them, they're not going to church with you. I mean, you've been working on them and working on them, and they're just honest about this thing. We don't want to have anything to do with God. And they turn it off. And some of them even go this far. They say, yeah, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm going to hell. I'm bad. And they're proud of it almost. I'm bad. And so they shake their finger at God and they deny him all day long and they don't give it a second thought. You don't have to guess where those kinds of people stand. They're God rejectors. They don't care. They're proud of it. Nobody's going to tell them how to live their life. Well, Jesus compares these to those kinds of people. In those days, they were represented by these terms, publicans and harlots. Now, we know what both of those are. Republic, uh, not Republicans, but publicans. <laughs> publicans are tax collectors. And harlots, you know. Well, really, those two terms here, publicans and harlots, are just generalizations. They're generalizations for people that are the low rungs of society, the outcasts, the people that religious people don't want to have anything to do with. But you know something? John the Baptist came and he preached to those people and he called them to confess their sins and to get right with God. Now, as Charles Simeon said, these were people that were abandoned in character. They showed utter contempt for the will of God. But what did they do? Well, their next action is repentance. They repented of their sins. Now, at first, they had no thoughts of changing their ways. They were willfully disobedient. They refused God. They had no remorse for it. But then something happened to them. And you and I that know Christ, we know that feeling. We know what happened to them, that the Holy Spirit came to them, something that they had never counted on, and they became sorry for what they had done, and they realized that they were wrong, and they turned around. Oh, it's just like the Apostle Paul when, when he was saved. He was on his way to Damascus, and he had no intent of becoming a Christian. Rather, he was going there to capture Christians, to take them to prison, and then to kill them. And so he had no thoughts that what he would ever do was to trust Christ as Savior. But then Jesus appeared to him in the way, and the next thing that Paul knew, he was down on his knees, bowing before the sovereign Lord, and saying to him, Lord, what will you have me to do? No intentions of following Christ until he was smitten by God. And we know that 
We meet so many of these, they hate Christ and Christianity, they're mockers, but then they hear the gospel of Christ and what the Lord does, whether you want to believe it or not, he wrenches a confession out of them. He twists and turns the soul until it says, I can't do anything else but trust Christ. That's the way that God works. And so they turn around and they receive Christ. And I would have to say that there are some of you in the congregation today that you were those harlots and those publicans, so to speak that you had no, no idea that you would ever want God. Now, the second son, what's the conduct of the second son? What did he do? Well, he looked into his father's eyes, and with all the piety of perfect obedience, he said, Yes, sir, I will go. I'm not like my no-good brother. I'm not a rebellious son. I will go. Well, let's identify the actions of this son. First is his dishonesty. Now, folks, hold on, because you know I'm going to have to target some of you when we get here. His dishonesty. This son was a liar. His actions were not the same as his words, and so he was a hypocrite. He talked a big game, but he never actually did anything. And we have some of those in the church, don't we? Uh, we, we have these, it's the religious crowd, not the old sinners that are out there doing everything that's wrong, all the nasty stuff that people do, but these are people that come to church and they're holy and they're pious and they pretend to be, but it's all dishonesty. They're people like the fig tree that we studied about earlier, where, where it had leaves on it and it looked like there was plenty of good fruit there, but when Jesus came and he looked underneath the leaves, there was no fruit. He found nothing. And that tree is like these people. There is no true righteousness and holiness. There are people who go to church and they know the religious language. They can give you the gospel speak. They can say all the right stuff, but they don't have Christ really in their heart. They don't know him at all. They're big talkers, but they don't have the true religion of Christ. I mean, it's just like Adam and Eve that tried to cover up their sins with fig leaves, but they were still naked in the eyes of God. And that's because they did not have the righteousness that God gives. And so these people are like that. These are people that said, now these are, are Jews that grew up in the system, and, and, and they said, we have the oracles of God. God has committed his word to us. We're the guardians of it. We have the commandments. We do all of the rituals that are required. We keep the sacrifices that need to be done. But they weren't holy. There was no heart for God. And it goes on in churches all the time. Uh, the rituals that are done, the liturgies that are said, the sacraments that are kept, all of these things, all the good works that are done, but there's nothing at all in the heart. No change has taken place. Secondly is his disobedience. He said, I'll go. But he didn't go. And these people said, we'll go, but they never went. Jesus said in Matthew 15, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so all they had was a false religion, a pretend religion. All of it was a sham. And you can see it because what they're trying to do is to throw out the one who has the real authority, the one that they're supposed to worship. So what's the verdict passed on them? The question Jesus asked, which of these sons did the will of the Father? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's the one who at first didn't go, but then he did go. 
So which one of them gets into the kingdom of God? Well, as it turns out, it's the dregs. It's the ruffians. It's the second-rate ones who finally admitted their sins and then turned from them. And that's the kind that God saves, doesn't he? He even takes the chief of sinners when they'll turn and repent. But do you know who God refuses? He refuses the good moral man. He refuses the good religious guy, the one who goes to church and shows up at all the functions, does all the things that the rest of the people do, but has no heart in it. He has no heart that's good for Christ because he's not been washed blood or washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what Jesus says in verse 32. He said, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe in him. Now, there's the problem. The church is full of these big talkers. Here comes John the Baptist in the way of righteousness. He teaches righteousness. It's not a pretend religion because that religion is not good enough. If it had been, he never would have bothered with scribes and Pharisees. And they saw the tax collectors come, and they saw the harlots come, and they saw people whose lives were changed. And that's another thing I wish I had time to deal with today, that when people get saved, their lives are changed. They don't stay the same. This is one of the ways that you know that you're a child of God. You have a change in your life. Something takes place that's different from what it was before. Now, if we had time, we would go to Zacchaeus, that publican tax collector who climbed up in the tree to see Jesus. And when he saw him and believed in him, what did he say? I will return four times what I stole. That's a changed man. And Jesus said to the woman taken in adultery, go and sin no more. This is what he expects. So these people, religious leaders, they saw the change that happened to the worst, but the change that happened to them had no effect. They wouldn't repent. They would not repent at John's preaching. They would not repent at Jesus' preaching. They wouldn't repent in the face of authority. And they would not repent when lives were changed for the glory of God. So we have to ask, well, how do hateful people, how do God-rejectors, how do blatant sinners actually get turned around? And the only answer you can give to a question like that is that only God can do it. And they wouldn't admit to Jesus' authority. And so he said, publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Let me say one more thing to you before I'm done today. Some of you come week after week to church, and you see the power of God in the people, and hopefully you see that most of this group is, is a group that has the peace of God in their hearts, that they've come to worship the Lord, that they trust the Lord, they love the Lord. How is it possible for you to go on week after week seeing what's happening here and then not trust Christ? How can you ignore everything that is around you and still be that person who comes to church and acts holy and pious without really have trusted Christ in your own heart? Now here is the problem that we see here is that one of these days God is going to be done with you. That one of these days God is going to give the last command. And if you still will not go, heaven will be shut up to you. Others will go in, and you'll be left out. And you'll be left to suffer the consequences of that rejection. See, only Jesus has the authority over your soul, and he's going to use that authority for or against you. And the question is, which will it be?
Now, if we were looking at this story, we would think, well, what Jesus should have done here was to include one more person. He should have had something to say about a third son. And this is the son that his father said to him, go and work in my vineyard. And this son said, yes, sir, I will go. And he went. But there is no third son. And you know why there is no third son? Because all of us are this way. We have all rejected God. We have all said no to God. We have all gone our own way. And it's not until we repent and turn around and put our faith in Christ that we're going to go the right way. All of us are God rejectors. That's why there is no third son. And what I'm saying to you today is this is what you must do. You have got to reverse course. You've got to turn around. That's what repentance is. Turning from your sins, realizing what you have done wrong, and trusting Jesus Christ to save you from them. And that's the only way that you're ever going to see heaven. One of these days, God is going to say, there is no more time. The day is done. The night has come. The harvest is past. And there is no more opportunity to go to work in my vineyard. And some of you may be very fast approaching that day. And the thing for you to do is to turn around and trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's the only hope that you have. If you keep saying no, then he's going to say, you cannot come. And finally, he says, you never will be able to come. That day's fast approaching. This is why we preach these things. This is why we pick up the Bible and we actually do read what Jesus said. That's the information that you need because nothing else will ever save your soul. No matter how badly you want it, nothing saves your soul but the truth of what Jesus said, believing the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the word that we can look into, that we can actually read the words of Jesus. We have no other authority. We don't need someone to tell us what they think Jesus said, what they think God is going to do. We don't have to ask, what do we think God will do? We know what you will do. Your word tells us. And it tells us that people must repent of their sins. They must trust Jesus Christ because that is the only way they're going to go to heaven. So many people look for other ways. They have their own plan. They have their own ideas. They have the way that they want to go. But nobody goes any way but Jesus' way. The way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said that he was. Lord, turn someone today. Open up their hearts to see the gospel of Christ. And may Christians be revived to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.